You're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me on this frigid day in December. Following a fantastic episode featuring my favorite college baseball coach, Seth Thibodeau of Nichols State University, I thought I would throw you a changeup. I don't care what anybody says. A changeup is the most difficult pitch to hit in baseball. It wasn't until very late in my career that I learned to even hit off-speed pitch as well. And the reason I did is because I would mostly take off-speed pitches up until I learned how to hit them. I just wouldn't swing, basically, and just wait for a fastball to hit instead. And that's a mistake, of course, because some of the fattest pitches to hit are off-speed pitches that hang up in the strike zone. One time in my career, I was playing at South Alabama, the University of, acronym USA, which nobody talks about. (laughs) Anyway, it's in Mobile, and a guy threw me an EFAS pitch which has a high arc to it, almost like a slow-pitch softball pitch. And I had never seen that in my entire career. It was late in the game, top seven, and the ball came in, and luckily it came over for a strike, and I had the wherewithal to wait and wait and wait. And then I drove it to left center field, and I got a double, and I remember standing on second base looked at the shortstop and second baseman, and they were smiling. (laughs) And I wanted to ask, like, what the hell was that? (laughs) Do y'all do that often? It was the craziest thing. I mean, it's, it's never happened. I've never even seen it happen to someone else. And the fact that it was thrown for a strike and I was able to get the bat on it, it was just a crazy thing. I mean, it, it happened so fast. You just kind of react, but laying in bed that night, I remember thinking, was that real? Did I dream that? I, I couldn't believe it. So anyway, the Ephus Pitches creation is attributed to a guy named Rip Sewell. He played for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the 1940s. So today, I'm going to throw you an Ephus. <laughs> that is, I'm not hosting today's podcast episode. I'm going to turn the reins over to frequent guest of this show, Joseph Wells. I was a guest on his podcast recently and thought I would share that with you. We discuss my taking a year off to travel the world. We talk about what kept me from rejoining the workforce when I was finished traveling the world. And then some of the ways I was able to buy my freedom from mandatory work, how I invested, how I thought about investing. For example, not buying the Porsche when I was 29 years old, despite having the money in my bank account, despite dreaming about this car all through my childhood, I didn't pull the trigger. Then after about 38 minutes of this episode, you'll need to visit josephcwells.com to catch the rest of the episode. So in the back end, we take a deeper dive into what I thought was a big deal in my early years that turned out to be inconsequential, and also what I should have paid more attention to and didn't. So I hope you'll tune in for my answers to those questions. He asked some really deep and thoughtful questions, and so much more because there's about 45 minutes to an hour to the rest of the episode on the back end. So please enjoy my chat as a guest on the Joseph Wells podcast. My guest today is Brad D'Antonio, better known as Man Overseas. 
Brad is 40 years old and has been retired for five years. You heard that right. He retired at 35 after only 12 years in the workforce. In normal times, Brad and his wife travel the world living off passive income from their rental properties and other investments in the U.S. Brad also writes a blog at manoverseas.com and has a growing podcast by the same name. It's not often that someone is able to retire so early. It takes a special type of persistence and determination, or a mamba mentality, as Brad explains it. In this wide-ranging conversation, Brad and I discuss financial freedom, journaling, parenting, social media, and much more. Now, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brad D'Antonio. Brad, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Joseph. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's good to have you. This has been a long time in the making. Um, for listeners, give them a little context. I've had the pleasure of being on your show three times, and I'll link to those in the show notes. And over the course of the last two years, we've become pretty good friends. We talk quite a bit and are always bouncing ideas off of each other. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Likewise, I think it's so important to have friends of all ages, and you provide that window into the millennial way of viewing things, and I really appreciate it. Yeah, it, it's it's good to have older friends, younger friends. And, and for people my age, I'm 28, I think it's actually more beneficial to have older friends um, to see, you know, how people have been successful and how you can follow in their, in their footsteps. So where are you recording from today? I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana. New Orleans, Louisiana. Why, why New Orleans? My wife and I travel full time. We've been staying in Airbnbs for 30 days at a time in different places around the world until COVID hit. And since COVID, we've been staying in the hometown where we're from, which is Houston, and traveling to Mexico because we're so limited as to where we can go. We've had to cancel our trips to, to Europe three times. But we also spend time in New Orleans because we love New Orleans, and I have some family here. So it just so happened to work out where my mom and my stepdad my stepdad took a job in Corpus Christi, Texas, and will be there for a year. So in order to help my parents, help my mom pay off their house and keep them from putting it on Airbnb, we said, hey, we'll rent your house for the next year. We'll stay here. And I happen to have a friend who's an OBGYN that's about an hour drive from here. So that way we'll be able to have our baby delivered in January with a doctor that we know. So it all kind of works out perfectly. And we love her house, so we're enjoying it thoroughly. That's so cool. I, I, so I knew you were in New Orleans, and I knew you were renting a place. I didn't realize it was your mom's place. So that's, that's really cool. It is. So you're going to be there for a year, you said? Yes. Nice. All right. So you, you don't own a primary residence, right? That is correct. Okay. You, you and your wife kind of bounce around. So... I just want to make sure I'm setting the stage correctly here. You are unemployed, homeless, and expecting your first first child? That is correct. Yes, I quote-unquote <laughs> retired in April of 2015. And at the time, I had a primary residence that I leased out, and I moved all of my stuff into the property of mine that generates the least amount of income. Mm. And so that was sort of my storage unit. And when my wife and I married, we move all of, moved all of our stuff into that quote unquote storage unit and have since leased out all of my properties and got an actual storage unit that we pay $80 a month for and 
travel around the world. And so now we're stopping in New Orleans so that we can have a child. And then as soon as my wife is up for it, we'll start traveling again. Nice. Wonderful. And baby in tow. There you go. You know, I'm just busting your ass about, you know, being homeless and jobless, mostly because (laughs) I'm jealous. (laughs) I, I say it about myself all the time. I it's it's awkward explaining to people what your life is. And so in order to avoid sideways looks, sometimes I just short short circuit my answer and say, we're homeless. We're I don't work and just let them think I'm a loser. I've never really cared what people think anyway. So, yeah, they look at me sideways and then usually move on from there. Yeah, that's uh, that's probably a good way to handle it. But I mean, I so I think these are all great things. Uh, you retired at 35. You're 40 now. And, you know, that's that's astonishing. And it, it flies in the face of pretty much all conventional wisdom. So I, I want to dive more into that, you know, your, your thought process behind it and how you tackled it and what you do now. Uh, how old were you when you decided you wanted to retire early? When I stopped working, it wasn't my intention to fully retire. I was going to take a year off. But when I came back, so I was taking a year off to travel the world. And when I came back on fire, ready to go, replenished, you know, re- I had recharged my batteries enough to 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 just wanted to conquer the world when I came back and found out that the person that I had become wasn't valued by corporate America, which is really interesting, right? Because here I am thinking I've added so much ammunition to my repertoire in terms of how I was able to learn and grow in traveling the world and quickly came to find out that I was put into a box. And so the jobs that I wanted they didn't want me, or at least they weren't willing to pay me. And the jobs that wanted me, I didn't want them. So I was I was caught in the middle of ready to go back and then valuing my time so much that I was unwilling to accept very little pay for the asset that I'm providing, which is me. I mean, I know my work ethic. I know my ability. And I wasn't going to sell it cheaply because I valued my time so much. And one of the things you realize when you travel around the world is that you don't need that much money to retire. As soon as your expenses are covered by passive income, you are effectively retired. There's no magical retirement number. That's a farce. It's it's strictly can you cover your expenses? And if you can, then you are retired if you want to be. What was the disconnect from the time where you left uh, the working world at the top of your profession, making a lot of money, and one year later when you came back and they didn't want to hire you? I mean, what was fundamentally different about you that you couldn't get the same job or were you not looking for the same job? I was looking for a similar job, but in my line of work, which is sales, You've probably heard the old adage that sales managers want the person who's in a lot of debt because they want that leverage over them. So go out and buy the Porsche, go out and buy the three-story house. I want you desperate for money so that you're going to work 12 or 14 hours a day. What I bring to the table is not that, obviously, right? I was saving and investing a large portion of my income. But what I do bring to the table is a desire to be great and be the best that I can be and help to solve people's problems. I've got a a Mamba mentality where I'm going to hold myself to a higher standard than you're going to hold me. 
And the questions that I was asked in the interview process told me that we're not on the same level. Like if you're, if I'm required to, before I come on board, talk to quote unquote, the girls in HR and the girl in HR giggles and asks me, so mm -hmm, uh, like, what are, do you think you'd be okay working from home? And it's like, Hey, we need to get on the same page here. Like I'm coming with a Mamba mentality and you're asking me if I'm capable of staying off Netflix at 10 AM. You see what I'm saying? So they just, if I'm going to blame them, they're not asking the right questions. But at the same time, it's incumbent on me to convey what it is I bring to the table. And it was just hard to do because I'm anomalous, right? You don't encounter people every day who have taken a year off and they have the mindset that they're taking that year so as to develop and grow and make themselves even more valuable to the marketplace. But that's how I am. I, I like to be on 12-hour flights so that I can write and think and and evaluate my investments and and all of this stuff that that portends growth. And that's what I was accustomed to and that's what I'm used to. So I very much have this blue collar mentality. Like in, in high school, I was coming out of high school and I didn't have any scholarships. And so I walked on to play baseball somewhere and then I earned my scholarship in college. And then I came out of college, I didn't have any job prospects. So I took a commission only job. Like you're not gonna hold me down. I've just got this fire inside that's going to produce. And the disconnect is that you've probably never met anybody like me, or at least more, the overwhelming majority of your sales force isn't like me. And so you don't know how to interview somebody like that. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. So it seems like you kind of transformed from the person coming out of high school who didn't have the, the scholarship and coming out of college who didn't have the job you were kind of that person that the sales manager was looking for, right? Like you didn't have the Porsche and the three-story house, but you had a lot of financial pressure probably. Like you needed to perform to put food on the table and a roof over your head. And then over the course of your career and this, this one year off, you transform into the person who doesn't have these pressures, um, but you're actually probably performing better than 95% of the other salesmen in, in that industry or, or at that company. And it seems like it's probably because you've created some room to reflect and to think and to strategize. Um, so you've clearly operated well in both roles. Which one do you find yourself to be more effective in? And do you think most people are like that? Well, I think that you want a business person who is high in conscientiousness someone who wants to serve people and do what's right by them. And what I added to my repertoire was added empathy, added preparation, uh, realizing what it took to get me to where I am, and then harnessing that and seeing how I can utilize it to get even better in the next phase, which I imagine to be probably management and then VP, CEO, you know, on that sort of track. I think by saving and investing a large part of your income, in order to do that, generally you have to be disciplined and conscientious because you're keeping a budget. You're doing things for yourself that nobody's requiring you to do. And so once you, once you start to create 
options for yourself. Like let's say, let's say you're working in sales and you suddenly have a half a million dollar net worth. Well, I can do some math pretty quick, realize I'm living on three thirty-five dollars $4,000 a month. And I can see that if I were to walk away from this job, I could live for the next 12 years without any problem, right? Before I ran out of money. What that sort of mentality enables you to do is take more risk. And so if you want somebody on your team who is bold, who takes a lot of risks, who is going to speak up in meetings, who's going to challenge you a little bit, who's, who's open-minded and wanting to grow, they want to bounce ideas off of you and, and strategize, then that's, then I'm your guy, right? So I just felt as though this time off gave me a time to reflect on all of that and realize what I brought to the table. And if I'm viewing myself objectively, if I'm my own agent, I'm promoting this guy as having all of this that was willing to build on what he already had and like as conscientious to take the time, reflect and figure out how he's going to get even better. And those are the sorts of things that I did. And then coming back to the, to the corporate world and talking to people about going back to work, they talked to me as if I'm not only average Joe who doesn't realize that I wouldn't be able to do this if I wasn't committed to excellence to thinking I'm even worse than average because what kind of idiot walks away from this kind of money and from this sort of career trajectory that I was on? Who does that? And so I think it just kind of boggles the mind and, and that's where the disconnect exists. So do you think that plan of walking away and taking a year do you think that backfired? Because when you came back, the, the people who were kind of the gatekeepers to the new position just couldn't understand it. Backfired? If I was dead set on going back to work, yes. There are certain professions you wouldn't want to work in if you were going to take a sabbatical of any sort because they do want the person who fits the mold of what I'm talking about. Sure. They want leverage over you. They don't want the, the salesperson to have leverage. And in all candor, which is something I pride myself on, which we can get into that later. That's something that you realize when you get out of corporate America, just how just the lack of candor and how people are walking around being dishonest all the time. But backfired if it was my intention to go back to work at any cost, then yes, backfired big time. What that experience told me was that I'm going to have trouble working for someone whose values don't align with mine. And that's exactly what I need. Like if, if somebody were to try to hire me tomorrow, not only would it take a lot of money, but it would take somebody who views the world the way that I do in terms of you watch Kobe Bryant talk about greatness and get fired up. You watch The Last Dance and get fired up, the Michael Jordan documentary. Yeah, it was great. I need somebody who probably came from a sports background, who doesn't need somebody breathing down their neck in order to excel, right? We're a special breed of person where we're going to get shit done because 
I'm going to hold myself to a standard that you can't even hold me to. You see what I'm saying? Right. Like yeah, it's no, almost that, like it has to be a peer, a peer to peer relationship almost. Sure. I, I think that's really hard to find in the corporate world because so many people are bogged down by debt, like you talked about, and they're just kind of clawing to get to the next level so that they can buy the new Mercedes. But that's a good, that is, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's a, it's a good point. And so my advice to a recruiter, if you're looking for the needle in the haystack, is to ask better questions. And I think a great question would be, tell me about your habits or how did you get to where you are? Mm. Or why did you do this? You know, things like that. Open-ended questions. Don't come to the table with preconceived notions of if somebody takes a sabbatical, they're probably a counterculture loser, a dropout. Right, right. Because there is a lot of that going on. You meet people traveling that are trying to find themselves or whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a trendsetter. I, I, I go my own way. <laughs> You're uh, blazing trails. Trying. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, but I've always been unique in that I have varied experience, experience and I've recorded it and I've always tried to grow from my experiences. Yeah. So your, your ability to be in this situation comes from what we might call the position of fuck you, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and uh, on my uh, MacBook screen here. <laughs> that water out. That was awesome. So, so that term comes from a video that I sent you a couple of weeks ago, and it was this this remake that J.L. Collins did. And for listeners, J.L. Collins is he's a guy who has done a lot of writing on investing and, and stocks and that kind of stuff. He has his famous uh, series called the Stock Series, which is like an introduction to investing in equities. And he, he also wrote a book I think called The Simple Path to Wealth. So he he talks a lot of, about a lot of basic personal finance concepts and strategies and that kind of stuff. So anyway, he did this remake of a scene in the movie The Gambler with Mark Wahlberg. And I haven't seen the movie, so I'm not going to try to explain that part of it. But basically, he's saying like, okay, you take your two and a half million bucks, you throw 80% into VTSAX, you put 20% into bonds, um, you don't buy a house, you rent, you let the landlord take care of the expenses, you don't buy a fancy car, you buy a shitbox, and then you keep some money in the bank to cover your expenses. And what this does for you is it puts you in a position of fuck you. And what does he mean by that? He means that when somebody asks you to do something you don't want to do, um, the person who needs money is going to have to do that. The person who has money is going to be able to say, fuck you, right? And it's, it's not the idea that you want to be able to tell people, go fuck yourself. Like You still want to be a nice person, but you want to have the ability to do that. You don't want to ever have to act out of necessity. You only want to be able to act out of desire. So this concept to me has like really solidified in the last six months. Um, I sold some rental properties that I owned and got a, a good chunk of cash. And now I, you know, I haven't purchased my freedom yet. I couldn't walk away from my job and be good forever. Um, but I would be good for a long enough amount of time where I'd be comfortable walking away if I had to. And I think this is a huge realization that people don't understand until they're actually in that position. It lifts a huge amount of stress off of your shoulders. So can you talk a little bit about um, when you had that realization and what it felt like for you? For me, it was gradual because I had been tracking my net worth for 12 years. 
And so it wasn't a sudden, oh, I'm financially independent. I'm now going to quit my job and travel the world. I had properties that were paid off that would cover my expenses for a long time. And the reason is because I kept my expenses low. For many years, I was living on $2,200 a month. And so even though I might have made five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 in a month, I was adjusting my lifestyle deliberately up or down. So if I got a $10,000 check, I'm forcing myself to spend two of it because part of life is living. Part of life is lifestyle. So you should take your girlfriend out to a nice dinner and valet park. You should do those things once a month if you're making $10,000. But at the same time, I'm going to use $8,000 to save and invest. So I think when you have reached a point where you are financially independent and you're still working, yes, it, it breeds confidence. Yes, you, you can have the same mentality of a Kobe Bryant who, despite making $30 million a year, it doesn't change his character. He's still going to have that fire burning inside that's going to get him to practice early, mm. that's going to have him staying late, that's going to have him motivating his teammates, that's going to have him win. He's got a winner's mentality. He's got a growth mindset. He's studying referees and, and where they position themselves so that he can optimize his play so that he can be a better teammate, setting, in, setting his teammates up better. All of this comes with financial freedom because money solves your money problems and then you can not have to worry about money at all. So then it enables you to focus on other things, right? When you're auto investing into Vanguard every month, let's say, you don't have to spend time studying individual stocks, just as an example. So the FU is always there, but a high character guy is not going to say FU. He's going to not be afraid to suggest something in a meeting, let's say. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's that's great. And I, I think what it allows you to do is act consistently with your values, whereas otherwise you may not be able to. Precisely and authentically, right? right. This is the real me. I have no reason to lie to you. Right, right. So in the, in the video that I'm talking about, he said, Collins says, don't buy shit you don't really want to impress assholes you don't really like. You, Brad, wrote a really good article um, that's kind of similar to this, and it was about buying a Porsche. Can you kind of tell that story and talk about how the, the situation played out? Yeah, so when I was a kid, I had a poster of a Lamborghini on my wall, and I'm pretty sure I had a Porsche, too. But I, I lived in a small town, so the only people with money were doctors or lawyers. There weren't VCs, for example. You know, there weren't business people that were killing it. So there was this one man who is a, the father of one of my best buds who drove a Porsche. And every time we drove by his house, I saw that Porsche in the garage. And I just loved the back of it. Remember that, that streak of red where it would say Porsche on the back of a 911? Mm, I just thought yeah. that was so awesome. And so... I thought whenever I make my own money, whenever I start building wealth, I'm going to buy a Porsche. And when I got to where I was working and realized that people might be driving a Hummer and that they weren't necessarily rich because 
credit was so easy back then that you could make $60,000 a year and still afford to drive a Hummer, right? It's just a matter of how you want to allocate your money. If you want to live in a tiny studio apartment and pay $750 a month, but then have a $1,500 a month car payment, that's your prerogative if they'll lend you the money. So I quickly came to realize that it doesn't, uh, driving a Porsche at 26 years old doesn't indicate wealth so much as it indicates stupidity because of compound interest. Mm -hmm. So if you put that money into an income producing asset, that $60,000 or however much the car costs is going to be worth five, seven, 10 times that amount in 30 years. And you're going to really appreciate having put that money into the market rather than spending it on a depreciating asset. So I must have been 29 years old. I went to the car dealership. I had $80,000 liquid cash sitting in my savings account. And on the way to the car dealership, I was thinking about how this was going to be the last time I ever drove my Nissan. And I didn't put gas in the car because I know that they don't give you an extra 50 bucks just for filling up the tank. You don't get a thank you for that. So I went to the dealership and the sales guy was your prototypical sales guy that nobody likes. He was pushy. He used every little closing technique in the book. And he really turned me off to the idea of purchasing this Porsche. But I still was going to go home to think about it. And I let him know that. Well, on the way home, I stopped to get gas, to put gas in my car because I was running on fumes. And as I'm standing there pumping my gas, I'm scrolling through my email and I see that I have an auto notification of a property that matches my criteria just came on the market, an investment, a potential investment property. Three bedroom, two bath, single story, 1400 square feet, exactly what I'm looking for you know, in a decent school district. So... I decided in that moment that I was going to take that $80,000 and purchase a house instead that would provide about $1,000 a month in, in free cash flow. And I would have that $1,000 for the rest of my life and the rest of my kids' lives and possibly their kids' lives if they hold on to that asset. And so I can remember as a kid, my grandma, who also invested in real estate, she was telling me that she paid like $5,000 for this property in New Orleans. And wow. unfortunately, that property was flooded in Katrina, never to be revived again. So she packaged it with another property and sold the two for $80,000. But that property for 40 years provided her with quote unquote mailbox money, which we don't call it mailbox money anymore because it's easily deposited into your account. You don't even have to put effort of walking to the mailbox, right? So from that aspect, real estate investing is even easier than it used to be. Mm -hmm. So rather than buy the Porsche, I bought the property and I did some math to see how much money it's put in my pocket over the last 11 years since I bought it. And I want to say in total appreciation, I bought it for 70000 It's worth probably one fifty now. That's an $80,000 gain in, in net worth. You add the monthly payments up, it comes to something like total of 108 months. It's like, shit, I don't remember the number, maybe 72,000, let's say. So from buying that asset, I have an additional net worth of $152,000. And that's not counting 
the property itself, which was a $70,000 purchase. So you've got the appreciation, the cash flow, and you still have this tangible asset that is going to provide income for the next 40 years or 80 years, whatever that my heirs decide to do with it. So the, the Porsche is now worth roughly, if it's driven conservatively, about seven or $8,000. So that's a difference of about quarter of a million dollars, just from that one decision that I made when I was pumping gas as a 29-year-old. What a swing, man. You could buy three Porsches for the, the price of the Porsche that you passed up on. And that, you know, that, that's the prime example of delaying gratification. I love that. I love it. So Brad, I want to I want to jump into journaling a little bit because it's a habit that I've picked up this year, largely thanks to you, and you've done a decent amount of writing about it. And in one of your pieces, you say that if you had to attribute your success to one thing, it would be journaling. Why journaling? Because of the benefits, they are numerous. I feel the same way about journaling as a tool to live a better life, live a bigger life. I, I feel it's as important as exercising regularly. I mean, it's, wow. it's that key. I think it's a keystone habit from which all your other good habits could flow from. So just like prayer or meditation or however it is that you exercise your mind, reading, journaling, note-taking, all of that provides a similar benefit for my mind that exercise does for my physical health. Is it the practice of writing itself or is it going back and seeing what you've written or, or what is it exactly that's so beneficial? Well, that's a good point, right? You're starting to name the benefits and I don't even know that if one is more valuable than the next, but you start to talk about going to the gym and it's like more energy, more friends, more confidence, look better naked. It just goes on and on and on. Well, with journaling, it's sort of the same way. It's like clearer thinking, better decision-making, remember people's names, building a network. I mean, you could just go on and on and on and on. So Sure. What is your specific practice now as it pertains to journaling? And what was it when you started? And then what has the evolution been over, over the time that you've been journaling? your daily practice or, or weekly practice or whatever it may be? When I started, it was so bad. My first ever journal entry was September 7th of 1998. And I had just moved in with two roommates. And it says, I just moved in with Mark and Jeff. Rent is $590. Jeff has two red tail boas. I have my own room. And like, that was it. My next journal entry said Mark McGuire just hit his 62nd home run and pretty much that was it. And so that's how it started. I knew that the habit and consistent writing was more beneficial than trying to get creative and, and writing an essay because it's supposed to be for me. It's a, it's a tool for me to live the best life possible. And understanding that nobody else is going to read it if I don't want them to. Mm -hmm. And so I bought a safe and I knew it's, it's going to be locked in this safe. And 
if I want my heirs to read it someday and there's stuff in there that I would rather they not read, like let's say I'm having trouble with an ex-girlfriend or something, well, I'll just black it out and they can read the other stuff. And I, I, there's just so many benefits. And, and maybe the biggest benefit now is being, to, being able to pay it forward and getting other people doing it because they're starting to tell me about the benefits that they're getting. And it's just so huge. It's so helpful in a person's development. It is the best tool for, coming, for becoming a student of your own life. And I think that that is the best school there is, is your own life. You're intimately familiar with every aspect of your life, but you won't remember what you learned unless it's documented. And once it's documented, then revisited, well, then you will have seen a quote 15 times, let's say. So you come across a quote, like my favorite quote in my life is a Catherine, what was her name? Catherine Mansfeld. This was 2004. I don't even know where I read this, but as soon as I read it, I grabbed my journal and I wrote it down because I knew it would benefit me. And it said, make a rule of life never to regret and never to look back. Regret is an appalling waste of energy. You can't build on it. It's only good for wallowing in. So if I revisit that quote every year on December 31st, by the time I'm 35 traveling the world, I realize I've read this quote at least 11 times and reflected on that quote. It's internalized. So when I come across a situation in life where I start to brood over a decision that I made in the past that affected me in a way that I wasn't expecting, I won't dwell on it because I'll flash this, this quote in my mind and it'll help me to get over it, right? Regret is I'm wasting energy by spending time thinking about this stupid thing that I did. So I want to get better and not, not only not make that mistake again, but I don't want to waste 10% of my life with thoughts of this, this instance that didn't benefit me at all. Yeah, I, I love that. I, so I remember when I was in, had to be maybe 10th grade, and I was stewing over something. I don't even know what it was. Um, and my grandparents were visiting, and my grandpa said to me, worrying is like paying interest on a debt you may never owe. And, you know, that was probably 15 years ago now. And that quote is just in my mind almost every day. And I think it's quite similar to the one that you're talking about. I love that quote, too. I'm afraid, though, what happens is the rich get richer. And what I mean by that is those like yourself who realize the benefits are going to be the ones who engage in this behavior, this habit and are going to benefit most. Those who are not capable of, of appreciating a quote like you just read to me are gonna be the ones who don't journal. They're gonna be the ones who use the internet for ill purposes. So I'm, I'm of the opinion that we're living through the golden era of self-directed learning. We have access to all this knowledge in the world. What's going to separate you from others in terms of personal development is going to be how you use that most powerful tool ever created. And one of the ways is to shut off everything, turn your notifications off. I, I don't understand why anybody would ever want notifications on their phone. But that's, yeah, another, that's another line of thinking. But 
yeah, all that time you spend mindlessly scrolling could be spent journaling. And I'm telling you, when I go back and read my 2006 journal, that is so much more valuable to me and probably future, you know, my kids. It's so much more valuable than anything I could have been doing online at that time where time just flies, right? You don't know where the hour went. Yeah, for sure. And so another thing that stands out to me about journaling is that almost any time you read a good biography, like I recently read the the Pat Tillman biography by uh, John Krakauer. It was fantastic. A lot of that biography was based on Tillman's journals, right? And if you read, you know, a presidential biography or or a, a biography of anyone really, whoever wrote that biography probably relied heavily on the subject's journals. Biographies are usually written about people who are successful in one way or another. So if all of those people are keeping journals and I'm not, I'm probably doing something wrong. (laughs) Such an excellent point. Yes, there are so many very successful people who kept journals and they wouldn't have done that if they didn't see awesome benefits. For sure. And when I started doing it, the early returns were so vast that there is no way that I was going to stop doing it. And I, th- I think that so many aspects of life are this way. Once you see the early returns, you're going to commit to a lifelong exercise of doing it. Sure. Yeah. So you, re- you recently wrote an article on your 40th birthday. Um, I think it was called 40 pieces of advice to my 20 year old self. And I don't know if they were in order of importance, but number one in that list was keeping a journal. And you wrote, um, you'll want to look back and see what you thought was a big deal and what you believed and what you predicted. So my question to you is, what did you think was a big deal that turned out to be inconsequential? And then on the other side of that, what did you disregard that you should have paid more attention to? Friends, I'm sorry to interrupt our conversation. To continue listening, I'm going to ask that you please switch over to josephcwells.com. There at the top, you'll see three small little lines that act as a dropdown, kind of like you might see on Facebook. And one of the options is podcast. So click on it and you'll see Joseph's backlog of guests, which is quite an impressive list I'm proud to be a part of. Names like Bogosian, Eric Jorgensen, Even Morgan Housel, the author of The Psychology of Money, has been on the Joseph Wells podcast. I'll be the first person listed at the top because it's listed chronologically. So if you're listening in December or early January, expect to see me at or near the top. There you can listen to the rest of our episode on his blog, or there are links to Apple and Spotify on there also. My answer to this particularly thoughtful question that he asked me about what I thought was a big deal when I was younger that turned out not to be a big deal. My answer may surprise you, or at least it should, because I I felt like I was on the spot and kind of surprised myself with my answer. We also talked about a lot more, a lot more in-depth sort of topics, or, or that requires some deeper thinking, I should say. So I hope you'll take a, a few seconds to switch over to the Joseph Wells podcast and let me know what you think. You can either Leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which I love, and I always send a, a gift as a thank you. Or I respond to every DM I get on both Instagram and Twitter. So I look forward to hearing from you. I can be found at man underscore overseas. Then we'll be back next week to our regularly scheduled format. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks.